from the New York City area, welcome to the Badass Counseling Show, where the master badass himself, Sven Erlinson, takes you deep and gives balm for the soul, baby. And we are in studio for another exciting lightning round episode of the Badass Counseling Show. For those of you who are tuning in from the United States, Canada, and countries around the world, thank you so much for following the Badass Counseling Show. We love having you here. I'm in studio tonight with KC back in the booth and my master producer right next to me, Rob. Say hello, Rob. We ride. Let's go. <laughs> always good to go and always making me sound infinitely smarter than I actually am. I'm here to help you. I'm here to counsel. I'm here to um, give you the bits of wisdom that I've learned from my 30-year counseling practice uh, in California and uh, New York City and so forth, working with people on all sorts of questions. So what do you have for me? All right. Ava Lee asked the question, how do you deal with someone who completely lacks empathy towards his wife? Um, Ava, I'm going to assume that you actually are the wife. And so you're saying that, uh, how do you deal with someone who completely lacks empathy towards you? Um, I'm going to assume that you've been trying to convey to your husband, I assume for quite some time, and there's no empathy for your pain. Um, I'm going to start by asking the question, what keeps you in a relationship with someone who has no empathy for your pain? And, and I'm not trying to be a jerk. I'm trying to help you heal you. Because clearly this person doesn't care about your feelings, but I hope you do. And I'm asking you, what is it, what caused you to stay in a relationship with someone who doesn't care about your pain? Who is, uh, this is someone who has no empathy for another person's pain. Is this someone who will walk through life inflicting all the pain they want and basically saying, fuck you. Your husband is basically saying to you, fuck you, I don't care about your feelings. And to say, I don't care about the feelings of another person is fundamentally to say, I don't care about you. And so this is someone who's a taker. Your husband is clearly an extreme taker, which means in all likelihood, you're an extreme giver. You're choosing to stay with someone who is clearly showing through their actions and their words that they don't care about your feelings. Why are you staying? Under what definition of good relationship does this fit? Because I'm not sure it does. It indicates so much to me about you. And I'm not saying this to be hurtful. Please understand that. Because in order to understand the problem, in order to understand the course of action you want to take, you have to understand yourself. Know thyself. And so if you're staying in a relationship with someone who actually hurts you and deliberately hurts you um, and knows they're hurting you, I'm assuming you've told them that they're hurting you and that they keep doing it, why would you stay in that? And that indicates to me extreme fear. Fear of walking away, fear of being alone, fear of what happens when you are alone, that all those voices saying, you're no good, you don't matter, you're unlovable, all those voices come rising up. So at least by having someone here, even if they're hurtful and abusive towards you, uh, beats being alone because you don't, you've got a counter message to all those voices inside that you've been hearing your whole life saying, you suck. And so at least by him being here, hey, I must not suck very bad because he wants to be with me. But what that means is you'll endure all manner of shit, precisely as you're saying. And uh, she asked, Ava Lee asked the question, how do you deal with someone who completely lacks empathy towards his wife? Um, in all honesty, you have a choice. This is the come to Jesus moment in your life. You have a choice. You can either choose to stay in the relationship knowing you're going to eat shit and because and, he's clearly not going to change. You've made him aware of the pain he's causing you and you're choosing to stay in the relationship. So he doesn't have to change. There's no incentive. There's no pain point. He gets to have you showering love on him. He takes, he can hurt you and he doesn't have to change a goddamn thing. 
Well, uh, so you can either stay in it and just learn to continue to eat shit. And you have to be okay with that. Or you can walk away. But you're terrified to walk away, aren't you? Of course you are. That's why you stayed in a relationship where someone doesn't care about your fucking feelings. You're terrified. And if you really want to heal yourself, you need to go into why you're so afraid of walking away from someone who is deliberately and willfully hurting you. When someone willfully hurts another person and willfully hurts them repeatedly, we call that malice, even hatred. And why would you want to stay with someone who is willfully malicious towards you? It's not good. It's an indicator of what you really think about yourself. And so if you want to heal the situation, you go inside and you heal those core beliefs. You begin to go down deep and identify what those core beliefs are that you have about yourself and where the hell they came from. And that's deep, heavy work. And that's what I you know, wrote the book for. There's a hole in my love cup. Um, anyway, all right, next question. Sammy the Hokage asks, how do I get rid of my social anxiety? I feel it's holding me back, but I can't help it. Anytime you see the word anxiety or hear yourself talking about your own anxiety or someone else's anxiety, you have to understand anxiety is driven by fear. Anxiety is driven by fear. And social anxiety is fear that something might happen in a social setting that would hurt me. So if you have social anxiety, it's driven by the belief that I might get hurt, which seems to indicate one of two things. Either A, you've been hurt in social situations in the past, as has every other human on God's green earth, um, and or... Um, you believe that you suck. See, people uncomfortable in social situations or in a love situation or in a friendship situation or in a work situation, if you're uncomfortable in a situation that it sometimes can stem all the way back to what you were taught about yourself, taught that you're unlovable, unwantable, that you don't matter, taught messages about yourself, and so you have grown to believe to some greater or lesser degree that you suck. And so part of the fear is being in a setting with someone and they will see, either because you commit a social gaffe or um, you say something offensive or you don't speak up enough, you think all of those things are indicators and people will see how shitty you really are. See, if you actually liked yourself, you would feel far less uncomfortable in those situations because you wouldn't fear people seeing how shitty you really are. But somewhere in you, you believe that you suck and your fear is that people will see it too. And so the way you deal with that is not by trying to deal with the actual social situation itself. That's coping, that's dealing, that's trying to change your behaviors. But if you wanna change the root problem, you go down to what the real fears are um, that are driving it. But more importantly, the core beliefs that you are taught about yourself. So when you ask the question, how do I get rid of my social anxiety? I feel it's holding me back, but I can't help it. You go down and figure out what the hell were you taught about yourself that is so fucking ugly and disgusting that you're terrified of people seeing it? Next question. Okay, here's a good one. Hey, Sven, I cut off communication with my drug-addicted father. I'm dealing with guilt. Do you have any advice? Uh, yeah, just guilt is like any other feeling, like fear, like sadness, like depression, and that is... What you do is you get yourself a pen and a paper and you start writing about how you really feel. Start getting it out of your head. Because as long as all those feelings are in your head and in your heart, they're tumbling around and tumbling around like clothes in a fucking clothes dryer that won't shut off. What happens to clothes in a clothes dryer and a hot clothes dryer when the clothes dryer won't shut off? When they just keep tumbling and tumbling and tumbling in the heat, they go, they shrink and shrink and shrink, right? It begins to degrade the fabric, right? And then you have a very small sweater, <laughs> Um, and so you got to flush it out. You got to get it out of your head. And, and another thing that you can do, if this relates to a relationship, and it does, your drug addicted father, write a letter to your father that you do not send. Write a letter to him 
telling him all the feelings that you feel, the feelings of not just guilt, but the feelings of anger that you feel towards him, the feelings of hurt that you feel towards him, how you really feel because of his drug addiction, how it really bothers you, not when he's addicted, but when he's clean. You guys have maybe heard me say this before, that very often, the person, you, when you're dealing with an addict of any sort, the person you're most angry at, whether you realize it or not, it's not the addict when they're using, it's the addict when they're not using, because it's when they're not using that they keep making the choice to not get help. That's the problem. And so how do you deal with your guilt? You're, you know, what should you do? You've cut off communication with him. You just flush all that pain and all those feelings out. But I also want to say this, cutting off your communication with your drug addicted father was a, a master stroke in your own healing, in your own um, uh, self-growth and self-care. Why? Because you are fundamentally prioritizing your feelings. You're fundamentally prioritizing you. You are basically saying in the, cutting off your drug addicted father even though you're feeling guilt, you are fundamentally stating, potentially for one of the first times in your life, I matter. Your actions reflected the belief that I fucking matter. My fucking feelings matter and I'm sick of this shit and I don't want this around me. And that is huge in personal development and growth and becoming happy finally in life is having the courage to say no. And yes, the first time, the second time, the fourth time, it comes with guilt shit that I hurt the other person. The fact that you feel guilt is actually a good sign because it's a sign that you reflect on your actions and you don't like hurting other people. That's great. But the truth is part of becoming an authentic self is you're going to hurt some people. <laughs> Hell, part of living is you're going to hurt people. My father, uh, before he passed at the age of 92, he always used to say for decades, he'd say, anytime we are living in community, whether it's a family or a team or a work setting or a husband and wife, there's always going to be the bumping of elbows and the bruising of ribs. The inflicting of pain is an inevitable aspect of human community. So it's not, how do I find a, a pain-free relationship? That's a myth. And I talk about that in one of my past books, the myth of the pain-free relationship. It doesn't exist. What exists is contrition and forgiveness. And so you cutting off your drug-addicted father and that you're dealing with guilt, that's good. And, but you finally had the courage to make your feelings matter over someone even as important as a parent. Next question. How do you walk away when it's a parent? Basically said this, just finished covering this one. How do you do it? You set up your boundaries. You say, this, these are the rules, these are the terms, and you're going to have to honor them. And they're count on the fact that they're probably not going to honor them. And they're going to press those boundaries because they've always had full access to you. And they've always had the power. You got to remember when you are born, the parent has all the power. The parent is basically a godlike figure. And so that child looks up to this godlike figure and all, walks into the world with no power. All power is owned by the parent. And the good parents are the ones that are bit by bit giving power back to the child, especially into those teen years. Um, and so... Uh, to then cut off a parent when they've had power over you and when they've had access to you takes courage. But it, more than that, it takes the willingness to insist on those boundaries, even when it gets ugly, even when it gets a little nasty or a little scary, or even when they're insisting. And it takes the willingness to walk away from your parent. It takes the willingness to live without them. It takes the willingness to hurt their feelings if that's what it's going to require in order for you to honor your feelings. And if you've had a parent who's sort of overrun your life or your life has been run on their expectations, uh, having the courage to say my feelings matter is a, just a monumental thing. Uh, Miss Shell says, what you put through your mind is what you will feel. Well, that's not always true. <laughs> I'm sorry, but <laughs> when your dog dies, your favorite dog that's been with you for 12 years, or maybe your favorite cat, let's say, I'm not even looking at a child or a lover or um, one of my clients today just found out that her 
uh, best friend committed suicide. I don't care what you put through your mind. That's pain. <laughs> it's going to be painful. You're going to feel pain when your dog of 12 years dies. There is nothing you can put into your mind that is going to take that pain away. And if you do put things into your mind to try to take that pain away, do you want to know what happens to that pain? It gets stuffed down, bottled up, put in the night depository slot of the vault of all your fucking feelings. And that's not good because that shit will bite you in the ass later. It will grind down your life. I deal with poor people, middle-class people, extraordinarily successful people. And one of the things that's fascinating to me is the people who have so much willpower that they build these massive careers and they come to me in their early 40s or mid-50s and they're finally f so fucking miserable that all the willpower in the world can't make that hole inside go away, that pain inside go away, that vault of all the shit from their past that they thought they could willpower their way through. They realize they can't. They don't know what's going on. They don't know what the solution is. So the notion that you can run from your pain or just bottle up or stuff away your pain or just have more successes and achievements and that'll make it all better, you're lying to yourself. And not even that, you're just naive just naive. I'm telling you, I see it on the other end. One of the benefits of having a 30-year counseling career, counseling all ages, is you see the full trajectory of life. And one thing of uh, formerly being a pastor, and uh, I still do weddings and funerals, um, standing at a graveside of, of a person or counseling a family of where the you know 89-year-old mother has just died and you've known this family or whatever, is that you see the full arc of human existence and very often when we're in our 20s and 30s, we think we have the answers. <laughs> hey, Rob, when you were in your 20s and 30s, did you think you had the answers? Yes, and I was wrong. <laughs> and, and well, no, stay with me here, Rob. Stay with me here a second. What's something that you didn't know when you were in your 20s or 30s that you now know? There's so many things. Fair enough, fair enough. I won't put you on the spot. All right, next question. Sven, I'm being bullied at work by a supervisor. Any response she spins into her sick narrative? Um, clearly, this has been going on for some time. You don't really ask a question, but I'm going to assume your question is, what should I do? I'm being bullied by a supervisor. Well, the question becomes, you know, how long can you endure the bullying? Because if you're stuck with that supervisor for a very long time, you're stuck with a whole shit ton of misery. And I would also ask you this question, um, when you've thought about leaving, and I'm sure that thought has crossed your head, crossed your brain, um, what have you thought that it would take for you to leave? What have you thought that you would do if you did leave? You've got a super, uh, supervisor that's bullying you. You know, I, my brain first goes to, do you have an HR department? Can you report it? Um, because the truth is, if they're bullying you, either A, they're also bullying other people, or B, they will in the future bully other people. And there are a few things more um, that have greater power to infect and bring down a great company than bad management. Bad management, bad supervisors. It destroys morale and it inhibits productivity. So any uh, company that's worth its weight in salt, any corporate leader worth their weight wants to know that shit. They, because anybody who's smart enough to in, in running their own company or running a company wants to know that because they know the effect of that. They've been in business long enough to know that's not good. So do you have, um, is going to HR a possibility for you? Because it may not be, because it may get back. 
that they, you know, the supervisor may find out, find out, and that may double your the load of shit that's being put on you. But at some point, you've got to ask yourself, how much longer can I tolerate the pain? If there's no hope of this changing, how much longer can I tolerate it? Remember, you guys have heard me say it a million times: change will not occur until the pain gets bad enough, and it may reach the point where you're like, "Fuck it, maybe this is the gods talking. Maybe this is the gods saying." it's time for me to move on with my life and create something new and fresh. And sometimes stuff has to get really shitty before we finally have the courage to make the changes and we find that that then cracks open a whole new life. All right, how can I get myself to move on from my ex? I was the one that left him and feel like it was a mistake. You're sort of asking two questions there. You're saying, how do I get myself uh, to move on? But then you're saying, I left him and it was a mistake. So you're saying, I wanna move on, but I want him back. <laughs> is sort of what you seem to be implying. Do you want him back? And if so, uh, have you pursued that course? If you want him back, just go and say so. Tell your ex, I want you back. It was a mistake. And they may say no, they may say yes. But you just put your truth out there and see where the cards lay. And then, uh, you know, let let it fall where it falls. And But then, if it is a no, and you genuinely are ready to move on, you just keep flushing out all of your feelings through your journaling, through your counseling, keep flushing it out. We let go by holding on as tightly as we can. And I talk about this in my book, There's a Hole in My Love Cup. Go do all those things you used to do together. Go exorcise those demons, so to speak. And I remember when um, one of my wives, actually I used it in both cases with both my ex-wives, um, afterwards I would go to the favorite park that we used to like to go to together. I went to a concert again of the same group when they came back through town that we had gone to in like the second year of our relationship and had that experience alone again. And so I began to have these experiences, whether it was at our favorite bagel shop or um, listening to my, uh, you know, what her favorite song was. I kept having them and having them until they no longer had the emotional charge of association with her. There used to be a restaurant in uh, San Francisco called Left at Albuquerque. I think it was called. And uh, I think what, what district was it in? Whatever. Anyway, I had been there once with uh, my lover and we had a great time and it was a very strong memory for me. And so after uh, she broke up with me, I actually went back there a couple of times until I could go back there and not really have thoughts of her anymore. So what I was fundamentally doing was I had these memories such as that restaurant or such as the favorite bagel shop or going to our favorite park or that concert, or that group, whatever it was. I had these memories that still had emotional charges attached to them. And the way we are able to move on is the, when we decharge those memories, when we address the emotional charge through journaling, through counseling, et cetera, but also by having those experiences that um, remind me, those memories, having them again, but without that person. So now I'm creating new, uh, new memories that don't have the emotional charge. And I would keep going back to that restaurant until it was no longer charged with memories of her. Um, I call it just exercising the demons, so to speak. All right, next question. If anxiety is a disease, how do you cure it without meds? Um, my answer to curing anxiety is anxiety is fear. Fear is driven by pain, fear of pain, fear of uh, future pain, right? And you go down into what is causing that fear. What are the experiences that caused you to fear? Those are the things that are generating this anxiety and invariably the fears of our present don't just go to this last relationship, but go all the way back to childhood and the messages that we were taught about life, but more importantly about ourselves. And you go back into that through your journaling, through your counseling, et cetera, and you begin to identify the messages that you were taught. This is what I hold your hand through uh, in my book. There's a hole in my love cup. I teach you how to go down into 
uh, your past and identify the messages that you were taught about yourself because that fundamentally is what's driving your anxiety. And you get out all the pain and the fears and the bullshit beliefs you were taught about yourself, then tell me how much anxiety you have because I guarantee it has radically reduced, if not been eliminated entirely. And we'll be right back with more Badass Counseling right after this. Don't you hate it when you go home for the holidays and your family members can't stop talking about how lazy the newer generations are? Do you ever feel like you or they would be so much better off if some of that generational shit in your love cups got cleared out so you can actually enjoy yourselves? There's a Hole in My Love Cup is on sale now on Amazon and makes the perfect stocking stuffer or gift around the menorah for those you love but want to just shut the fuck up or for those of you who'd rather spend the holidays at home snuggled up by a fire with a good read. Happy holidays from Badass Counseling. This show provides soul counseling intended to entertain and inform and is not medical advice. Back with more to kick your ass, here's Sven. Welcome back to a lightning round of the Badass Counseling Show podcast, now ranked in the top 10 on Apple Podcasts for mental health and fitness. All right, we're back in it. And I get this question or some derivative of it, um, not every episode, but every few episodes. So I'm gonna address it, and it's very important. This is Garza Bird asked this question, and also Bodcat asked, Badcat asked a similar question. Do you have a degree from university to become a certified counselor? Badcat asked, do you speak of experience or because you studied? Uh, a few things. One, you can get my entire bio on my website, badasscounseling.com. While you're there, feel free to poke around. Uh, there are resources there for healing uh, yourself and your soul and so forth. So to answer the question, yes. Yes, I'm a former pastor. And part of uh, pastoral counseling is, or pastoral training is pastoral counseling. I'm a former trauma chaplain at a level one trauma center hospital. Level one trauma center is capable of handling anything at any time from burns to broken bones to all the worst stuff. And uh, I was an emergency room chaplain there. I was the trauma counselor at a mid-sized US airline. I've had a counseling practice in addition to formerly being in ministry. I've had a counseling practice for 30 years in uh, California and now the last nine years in Manhattan, New York City and Fairfield County, Connecticut. Um, I am specifically trained in peer counseling, co-counseling, trauma counseling, and pastoral counseling. So hope that answers your question. Again, feel free to go to badasscounseling.com for my full bio. All right. How do I stop my ex stalking my phone, uh, married 30 years, then divorced because of his drinking? How do you stop your ex from stop, uh, stalking your phone? I guarantee you there are going to be people that have better advice on how to stop a stalker from, stop, from stalking your phone. Not an easy sentence to say. Say that one three times fast. Um, if you can't block them off your phone, then maybe it's time to get a new phone number. Um, and if at some point you need to talk to a lawyer about restraining order or something like that, um, then you need to do that. Oh, this is great. This is a great question. Uh, I, Yost, 27, asked the question, I had my son young. He's an adult now. How do I reset and learn to parent an adult child? This is actually a really great question. Uh, a couple of uh, ways to go about answering that. One, um, unfortunately for a lot of young people, they don't have a parent. I'm going to sort of reverse engineer this. They don't have a parent who is interested in changing their parenting style. And so when I'm working with a young person as they move into young adulthood, um, and they want a different relationship with a parent or they simply want the parent to stop treating them a certain way. What I tell the uh, young adult is you have to retrain your parents. 
in how you want to be treated and how you don't want to be treated. You now have to train them. If they're not actively, eagerly trying to understand you, then you have to train them in what you will allow and what you won't allow. That being said, um, Jay Yost, 27, says, I had my son young. He's an adult now. How do I reset and learn to parent an adult child? Ask your son. Sit down and talk with your son and simply ask the question, what am I doing that doesn't work for you? How am I still um, parenting with vestiges of the past that don't work for you? And talk with your son because you're always going to be that parent, but with the nature of that relationship, if you're wanting a more equitable relationship or your son is wanting a more equitable relationship, then it needs to be based on two people's wants and needs. That being said, until your son is much older, you still basically exist to meet his needs, all right? That he doesn't exist to pour love into your love cup. No, you exist to pour love into his love cup, all right? Um, and so how do you reset and learn to parent an adult child? One of the single biggest things you do is you stop trying to fix. Now, maybe you don't do that at all, but anybody who's wondering how to move into adult parenting, it seems to hint or indicate at the idea that you've been treating them as a child, and very often the way we treat children is we fix, we interject, we intervene. And by attempting to fix someone and saying, you should this or you should that, you're fundamentally conveying the message, I don't like who you are, you need to be this instead. <laughs> I don't like how you're acting, you should do this instead. I don't like what you think, you should think this or say this instead. Well, that's pretty fucking insulting. And whether the child or adult child can put words that articulate, they're experiencing the underlying feeling of, this doesn't feel good. Why, you know, it, because you're fundamentally conveying the message that I don't like who you are. And so the biggest thing I would say is stop trying to fix. One of the things my mother, um, as you know, she passed away at 93, literally nine months and 15 days ago. She passed away on December 1st. And... Um, of last year. And uh, she said that one of the biggest transitions for her in raising six children was when they moved more and more into adulthood was waiting for them to come to her with their issues, with their problems, with things they wanted to discuss. She stopped prying. Not that she did a lot of prying per se, but she just said, if, if you want to talk about it, you'll bring it up. And with six kids, you got six different fucking personalities, six different ways and amounts that they want to open up or how they open up and so on and so forth. And I think she just sort of said, listen, if you want to talk to me, I am here. And there's something brilliant about that. And I have used that in the parenting of my own children. My children are now 31 and 28. And uh, I don't pry. I'm always there with an encouraging word and I ask them how they're doing and what the latest thing is going on in their careers or in marriage or uh, what have you. Uh, but I, I don't pry. I don't presume to know their business or comment on their business or that their business is my business. And if they need me, I'm here. And that's a willingness to let your child fail. It's a willingness to let your child go out on their own. They don't need me to fix every goddamn thing. And so the way you learn, and uh, Jay Yost, 27, says, I had my son young, he's an adult now. How do I reset and learn to parent an adult child? You let go and you step the fuck back. And you let the child come to you when the child wants to come to you, which means you have to get your own needs met for attention, for affection, for um, someone telling you they love you. And you know, as a young child it often is, especially you said you had your child young. So there's this very tight bond there that, in all likelihood, and maybe not, I could be wrong, you are getting some of your needs met from your child. 
And that's not okay. And it's especially not okay in adulthood. Now, that may not have happened. And if so, then forgive me for the mixed characterization. I'm just saying something that I've seen based on 30 years of experience of counseling people, particularly people who have children when very young. Uh, we all make mistakes as parents. I made more mistakes than you have. I guarantee it. All right? So I'm not fucking judging. I'm the last person who can judge. I'm simply saying that what you need to do in your own self-work is, is, is to assess the areas of your life where you are still trying to get your needs met from your child, and you need to stop. The last thing you want when a young person, when one of your kids is trying to take off in life, trying to finally begin their life, is to in any way be a burden or a source of expectations or judgment uh, in that child's life. They don't need you as an added burden because that's like a fucking 100-pound bag of rocks tied to their back when they're trying to fucking fly, all right? And then the other thing you can do finally is say to your child, how have I hurt you? Tell me what I've done wrong. I'm an adult. I can take it. You don't exist to protect my feelings. I'll be okay. And let them get it out of their system and simply listen and don't fucking defend yourself. Don't. There's nothing gained from that. Let them get it out of their system. There's something tremendously healing by simply getting it out of your system and to feel heard. And then if you want to apologize after they call you out on those things, great, do it line by line. Not just, gee, I'm sorry I did all that and now let's move on. But apologize for it. Um, but owning your shit is tremendously liberating. Uh, for your child. All right, next question. Self-love Savage says, I did a lot of work on myself before reading your book, and since reading it, I feel so much clearer. Well, I'm glad to hear that. And that's the thing about that book and about any sort. It's not just my book. There are so many great books. At the beginning of my book, there's a hole in my love cup. I have a list, a reading list of nine books, and I say, listen, you don't even have to read my book. Just go read these nine books and do the exercises in them, and mine becomes superfluous at that point. But there's the point really is that there's so many great resources out there, particularly uh, written, that can enable you to help heal yourself. So many people ask, I haven't found a counselor that really works for me. What the hell should I do? And I say, heal yourself. People say, you can do that? I say, of course you can. I healed myself. 12 years suicidal depression. I healed myself out of it. I didn't have help from a therapist. I just read so many books and I was stealing ideas and exercises and thoughts and so forth as I was creating my own exercises and so forth. So my book, my counseling practice is an amalgam of all the things that I've stitched together or created myself to create healing. So anything I'm recommending, I know works because it worked not only on me, but on clients over the last 30 years. All right, next question. After what I just said about you know healing with the child, this is a great follow-up question. Healing with the adult child and going to the adult child and asking them how you've hurt them and apologizing. Um, Tuck AI, and I hope I got your name right, Tucka. Tuck AI, um, says, I have done that, but she still won't have anything to do with me. So I'm assuming we're talking about your adult female child. Um, I've done that, presumably the apologizing and the owning it, and she still won't have anything to do with me. And that's... That's actually the perfect follow-up question because I see this a lot, or the perfect follow-up statement. You don't get to control the results. But a person who is owning their shit with regard to their child owns it and lets it be at that with the recognition of, and you can even explicitly state this to the child, you don't ever have to have a relationship with me. That's okay. I just want to own, I want to take the rocks out of that bag on your back that I put in there because the parents always put the biggest ones and create the most pain for that child. And you take those rocks and there's no guarantee you'll get a relationship with this child, this adult child. Certainly no guarantee you'll get it right now. But let me ask you this question. Would you rather heal the child or have the relationship? If you couldn't have both, and clearly if you're saying, I've done that stuff with my adult child, but she still won't have anything to do with me. Clearly if you're saying that, you, you're not getting both. But if you had to choose between... Um, 
your child healing and you not getting a relationship with that person, or you getting a relationship with your adult child, but they're not healing, which would you choose? And if you would choose the relationship over your child's healing, I can't really support you as a parent because you're making the wrong fucking decision. You're fundamentally making a selfish decision saying that I want this relationship more than I want my child to heal. And the goal is to help the child heal. And if they have a relationship with me, great, wonderful. I'd love it. Whether it be two years, 10 years, 25 years from now. And children age, adults age, and they mellow out and they wise, they get wiser. And sometimes they open up to having that relationship. Um, but the goal is just to take their pain because you're not done being a parent just because your kid is 22. Now there's this aspect of accepting responsibility for the, the damage you did. And they need to flush, they're probably flushing out their own pain, working on their own stuff, and the day may come when they come around. But the goal, but the point is, if you've truly done everything for healing to help your child heal, then you've, you've done your job. Now, if it was sort of a cursory, oh, I'm sorry for what I did, gee, I'm sorry, and let's move forward, and gee, now you should be my friend again. And I've got clients who have parents doing that, or I have clients who are the parents and trying to do that shenanigans. Um, you know, basically trying to skirt over and skirt past the pain that they cause to their child. And of course, your child's not going to want a fucking relationship with you because you're not honoring the significance of the pain you cause them. And until you honor the significance, the weight, the impact of the pain you cause a child, um, you're fundamentally saying, I'm more important and protecting me is more important than healing you, child. And that is fundamentally an insult. You're saying, fuck you. All right, next question. What to do when you try to hold boundaries, but holding those boundaries turns into abuse by husband? Okay. So you are holding boundaries, and when you hold your boundaries with your husband, your husband becomes abusive. That's your word. Turns into abuse. Um, and your question is, what do you do? Well, you continue to hold your boundaries, and you begin to look for ways to get the fuck out of the relationship. And you want to know Why? Because why would you stay in a relationship with someone who is abusive towards you? Furthermore, why would, why would you stay in a relationship with someone who doesn't respect your boundaries and your need? The mere fact that you're putting up boundaries says you're protecting yourself, your own needs, your own wants, your own interests. And what does it say that we have to protect ourselves from someone we're in an intimate relationship with? Boundary implies protection. And if you're having to protect yourself, that means you perceive the person you're protecting yourself from as a threat. So you're in this intimate relationship in a marriage and you see your partner as a threat. Well, that's not a good relationship to be in. So you need to, um, this abuse, basically what's happening is obviously clearly before you implemented these boundaries, there was a power imbalance in the relationship. He clearly had more power, but then you implement boundaries and he's like, well, fuck that. I want to get you back where I had you. I want you back under my fucking, I want your throat back under my foot. So I'm going to escalate my power. You escalate yours and put in these boundaries. Oh, I'll fucking show you. And then I'm just going to amp up. I'm going to fucking crank this shit up and escalate even higher to try to get you to back down again because I like having power over you. So you've got someone who by their actions is implicitly stating, I don't want an equitable relationship. I don't want a relationship where your feelings matter more than mine or even equal to mine. You're in a relationship with someone who doesn't give a shit about your feelings. Why the fuck are you in a relationship with someone who doesn't give a fuck about your feelings? Why are you in a relationship with someone who is knowingly, willfully abusing you? Why? Now, I'm sure you are afraid to get out. Afraid of being alone, afraid of what might happen, but you have to get out. There's no, and if there are children involved, you have to get out now to protect them and to protect you. At the very least, because you're teaching them that this is what love is, and this isn't love. 
and this isn't what a, a self-fulfilled uh, and self-loving person is. You're teaching your sons or daughters or both that this is love and this is how women act or this is how husbands act and this is okay. None of this is okay. Next question. Totally different direction. 412 Spike Face says, tips to improve self-discipline? Yeah. If you're having troubles being self-disciplined, either it's A, because the things you want to be self-disciplined about, the things you want to create and do aren't what you really want, or there's something dragging you down from inside, keeping you off your motivation, sucking your motivation out of you. And so you've got to go inside and identify, is it, what is it that might be dragging me down? You know, it, what are the aspects of your life that are not what you want there? The truth is we literally gain physical energy, literal physical energy. We begin to become lighter. We begin to have more physical energy to employ in whatever direction we want. The more we get out all the pain, the fears, and the bullshit beliefs you've been taught about yourself, the more you get all that shit out, the more energy you have and the more clarity you have, which means you'll be able to decipher whether or not this truly is what I really want. See, if you're not able to conjure the self-discipline to do something you claim to want, I would offer it's probably not what you really want. Because if you don't have the energy to sustain it, that which you love and really want for your life, you will have the energy to sustain. Again, unless you have so much other stuff packed on top of your real wants. So either way, you've got to get all that crud out that's keeping it packed down and or you need to identify the deeper wants. Yeah, I'm not saying you don't want what you're going after now, but there may be deeper wants. But ultimately, you got to get all that the crud out that's on top of it. All right. After this short break, I'll continue to take you deep right here on the Badass Counseling Show. So I saw this foul-mouthed dude on TikTok, thought, oh, another old guy spitting shit. But damn, by the end, I was hooked. He's spitting fire. Then I read his book, and it was like sitting down over beers with the deepest motherfucker ever. Love that book. There's a hole in my love cup. Respect the man deeply. And honestly, there's a hole in my love cup is one of the best books I've ever read. Thank you, Sven. What's the badass got next? Hey. It's great to have you back to the lightning round of the Badass Counseling Show where I'm taking listener questions live. And the next one up is, at 41, should I go back to get my MS in social work? <laughs> well, it's funny you say that. MS in social work or anything else you might be going back to school for, I'm all for, or going back for retraining for or whatever. Absolutely. You wouldn't even be considering it unless you thought that that particular path might make you even happier than you are today. So anything that might make you happier or give you a greater sense of fulfillment, that I'm, a, I'm all in favor of it. But obviously the real question is where you started your question with at 41. Well, 41, <laughs> I've got clients at 55 considering going back to get a PhD. Is it stupid, Sven? I want to get my PhD, but I'm fucking 55. I've got people in their 60s, clients and friends in their 60s, even 70s, taking on new career ventures. At 41, and I, and I don't mean this in an insulting way, I'm just giving it to you straight. At 41, you don't realize how young you really are. When you're 41, you don't realize how much life you still have in front of you. I have a, I have a uh, stepsister uh, who's in her early 70s. And she said to me once, she said, Sven, man, I'd take, I wouldn't even need to go back to my 20s or my 30s. Just give me my early 40s. Let me go back there. Because I'd still have 30 more years before I got to this age. And my knees are killing me and et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> it's like at 41, hell yes, go back to school. Hell yes, retrain. Hell yes, retool. Hell yes, take a bold new direction with your career. Or, you know, finally get out of this shitty relationship. 41 is so fucking young. 
I, I have a client right now. Um, we've sewn up our work together for the most part. Um, and he's uh, 61. And, you know, he just wants to have love and so forth. And he's like, oh, I'm never going to find it. I'm so old and all this shit. And he's he was sort of this space of, that's oh, futile. What's the point? And all this shit. And we did the work together. And then afterwards, he's like, fuck, I can't wait. He said, I, if I get it, I get it. If I don't, I don't. But I'm just enjoying being alive again. And I'm letting myself go after that, which will feel good. And if it breaks my heart, it breaks my heart. Yeah, but that's okay. But I'm still alive. I, I mean, one of the all-time greatest quotes is by the all-time greatest solo rock artist of all time, all time, according to Rolling Stone magazine. And of course, that's the fellow Minnesotan, Bob Dylan, right? Great artist, an unbelievable poet and, and so forth. And Bob Dylan, one of his greatest lines ever was, he not busy being born, is busy dying. At 41, at 61, fucking live, man. You don't get many more rotations around this earth if you're at 61, 71, 55, I'm 55, fucking live. I think the goal of life is aliveness, not safety, not living in fear. It's to feel alive, that experience of life, I'm living it, the ups and the downs. I'm not just sheltering myself from the downs or from the pain or from the fears. I'm not just cowering that I'm out there and I'm willing to have my heart broken. I'm willing to fail at something because I'm alive. You know, we've all heard that quote, when you're on your deathbed, the thing you're gonna regret most is the stuff you didn't do, the stuff you didn't try, the regrets, you know, that you wish you would have done. Yeah, exactly. To feel alive means a willingness to fail, a willingness to risk, a willingness to just get out there. So yes, I support you 2000%. All right, uh, next question. I met someone who's like 16 years younger than me and I'm freaking out because it's a big age gap. Right, the freaking out is fear. You're afraid of something. And so the question becomes, in your own journaling work uh, or in your talking it out with your therapist or your very closest friend or your clergy person, whomever, in your getting your feelings out of you, the question you really need to answer is what's the greatest fear driving your behavior? What's the greatest fear driving your freaking out? Is it the fear that I will, that I really like this person, I'm gonna start opening up and get more and more attached. And then because I'm you know, 16 years older, they're gonna leave me. I mean, I'm betting that's gotta be the fucking fear, right? That they're gonna, or they're gonna see my body that is 16 years older than them and they're gonna realize it's not attractive. They're gonna fall out of love with me. And I have some very, 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 very dear friends who have significant age gaps in their relationships. And these are relationships that have lasted 10, 20, 30 years. Really the age gap thing, <laughs> in any relationship we create stories around our fears and the fear that it's always the fear of getting hurt, right? fear of pain. And so, well, they, they may not like, in my case, they may not like that, you know, I'm 55 or may not like that I'm uh, large, just a big person, or may not like that I have a big mouth or that I'm vain or whatever it might be. We all have insecurities. And so we spin that then into a narrative and, and that consumes us. But at some point we have to trust. If this is something you want, you step into it and you, then you take another step into it and then you take another step into it, trusting that no matter what happens, I'll be okay. See, ultimately, life decisions boil down to a choice between fear and trust. We have these things that we want in life, whether it's a relationship or a career or a dream or a vision for our life, place we want to live, certain thing we want to do with our lives. We have this dream, but any grand dream, any bold stroke comes with fear. 
And so if that fear is significant enough, if we want to go this direction over here, very often we go tick, 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 tick. And we go, you know, 60 degrees off in a different direction because it's safer. Or we go tick, 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 tick. And we go 180 degrees in the opposite direction because it's not as fearful. And the only thing that has the power to dispel, to assuage, to um, get rid of that fear is trust. When you have something you really want for your life, a bold stroke, a new direction that you want to go with your life, the one thing that has the ability to deflate that fear and make it so it doesn't consume you and cause you to go in a lesser version of where you really want to go with your life, the only thing is not force, not willpower, because those will run out. And trust me, I deal with people who age, and as you age, that willpower lessens, and then your soul fucking grinds you down till you fucking, you know, live an authentic life. No, the thing that has the power to overcome fear and give you the capacity to go in the direction of your dreams, this relationship is trust. And I don't mean trusting the other person or trusting God or anything like that. Nothing wrong with any of those. I mean trusting that no matter what happens in my going after my dream or going after this relationship with this person that is 16 years younger, I'm, I trust that no matter what happens, I'll be okay. That even if I get my heart broken, even if I fail, even if I end up destitute, whatever it is, I'll grieve and there'll be pain and I'll grieve and I'll flush out the pain and the sorrow and so forth, but I'll be okay. I'll be okay. Next question. If you were to change one person's life, how would you change it? I'm going to take that question. I'm going to contort it just a little bit. If I could change people's lives in general, in one way above all else, how would I change it? And I think the change that I would make, you know, it would be very easy for me to say I'd, I'd change them into believing themselves and so on and so forth. But, you know, there's a part of me that thinks I would rather go back to the root of what's causing them to not believe in themselves or not love themselves or not believe that they matter. And the root is that they got these messages. If I could change one thing in people, it is the belief in people, particularly parents, raising young children or now with adult children or parents. I would change the belief that my way is the only way or my way is the best way. And if it's the best way, it's the best way for you. I would change it from my way is the best way to my way is the best way for me. I wanna ask you guys a question today. And this is gonna be uh, one of my last questions. I may take one more listener question, but this is my question to you. As you think about your parents, whatever age you may be, as you think about your parents, is it possible, and I know this is going to sound asinine, but go with me here. Is it possible that your parents' values are different from your values? Is it possible? I'm not even saying likely. I'm just saying, is it possible that their values are different from your values? Well, the obvious answer is yes. I mean, there are no two people that have exactly the same values on everything. So obviously there are gonna be differences. But the problem is in raising children that very often parents take operate from the stance of my values are the best values and or my values are the only values. And if you're not living, kid, my values, you're bad. Or I won't approve of you or get away from me or I'm gonna yell at you or I'm going to try to coerce you and fix you and change you into doing what my values are. And the truth is you never begin to live authentically and live happily unless you have the courage to acknowledge that I have different values from my parents. The two most power, one or two, maybe you had three parents, most powerful persons in my life that ran my life for many years that my values are different from them. See, merely acknowledging that you have different values then begs the question, well, 
then you give yourself permission to live your values and no longer live their values. And see, there's the rub, isn't it? Because that's you saying, I'm not them and I don't have to be who they want me to be. I wanna be who I am. So one of the experiences, or excuse me, one of the exercises I tell people in liberating yourself and beginning to define who you really are in, in relationship to your parents or no longer or in lesser relationship or differentiating yourself from your parent is take a piece of paper and draw a line down the center, right? Down the center. So you've got two columns. And in the left-hand column, right up at the top, uh, parent values. And then begin to list every single value you can think of that your parents have, parent or parents have. List all the values that you can think of, all right? All of them. And then in the second column, right at the top of the second column, my values. And this is a two-pronged thing, so stay with me here. And then go straight across from every one of those bullet points of their values and simply write in yes or no. In other words, is this my value or is this not my value? Yes, no, yes, 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 no, yes, no, 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 no. Okay, but here's the part where it really gets interesting. Next to the ones where you say, yes, my parents' value on this particular thing is my value, in parentheses next to that, write a percentage, a percentage that it's your value. In other words, let's say, you know, my parents always said, you know, be tight with your money, always save for a rainy day, always keep saving. Is that my value? Well, yes, it is. Okay, well, what percentage? Not to the degree that they did. For me, it's more like 60%. You know, you got to enjoy life too. And, and I believe in spending, but not to the same sort of crazy degree that they did. I believe in enjoying life and spending money as well and investing money, but also just enjoying it and having the experiences along the way rather than waiting to the end after retirement to have the experiences. And that's just one tiny thing. But it's putting those percentages over there. And what that does is it helps you to see you are not them. And very often in the parenting of children and adult children, there is the expectation that you will be, child, who I want you to be. You will be an extension of me. And there is not a permission. And so you spend your life waiting for permission to live your values, waiting for permission from an external power source to live your values. And it's never going to come. Very often they want you to live their values. And so you have to give yourself permission. And the way you begin to give yourself permission is to identify simply what your values are. And then you have the real come to Jesus moment of, do I have the courage to live my values knowing that these people who have to some greater or lesser degree set the expectations or um, the, the judgments and crit criticisms of my life and told me what I should do. Do I have the courage to face them and say, no, I'm not living that way. But very, the first step in beginning to reclaim your own life is identifying, beginning to identify how you're different and then giving yourself the very permission you've been waiting for your whole life because you're gonna keep waiting another decade and another decade after that, waiting for the permission that's never gonna come, waiting for the approval that's never gonna come, waiting for the acceptance, the acknowledgement of the pain that was caused, waiting for the apology. You're waiting your whole life to get something from a parent. And after you have a 20 year, 30 year, 40 year pattern of behavior, you begin to realize, oh shit, that pattern of behavior is unflinching. I'm never gonna get my needs met from this person, from this parent. And that's the most painful day of your life or one of them, but also the most liberating day of your life. So give yourself the permission earlier to live your life authentically. And you do that by identifying your values and who you are. Last question right now. Here's a final question of the day. Just beautiful one says, you said in one of your uh, podcasts to not forgive too early. Well, why carry hate with you for so long? <laughs> That's a great question. I like it. The truth is, the reason I say don't forgive too soon, if you choose to forgive at all, and forgiveness is optional. It's not necessary for healing. It's not. 
What's necessary for healing is to, for you to get your feelings out. The truth is, until you get those feelings out, you are carrying the hate. So I'm not in favor of just carrying it around, carrying around, or just not forgiving, uh, waiting for some arbitrary date. No, what I'm in favor of is you actually, for the first time in your life, unlocking the vault that has all of your feelings in them. All of your charged memories, those memories that have emotional charges attached to them, I'm in favor of unlocking that vault and for the first time in your life, not just feeling it a little bit, but un unlocking all of it and allowing all of it to come out. You don't ever have to confront that person, whether it's a lover or a parent or uh, you know a friend, you don't ever have to confront them, but you do have to confront your actual feelings. You have to allow the actual feelings rather than little burps and slivers uh, to come out, allow it all out. And once you do that, there is no more hate in you because until it's out of you, it's still in you. If you forgive too soon, you are short-circuiting the release of all those feelings. You're saying, oh, I forgive you. You're basically saying, oh, it's all gone. The feelings are done. It's no big deal. No, they're still in you. So you are fundamentally denying your own feelings and the significance and the weight of your own feelings in an attempt to restore the relationship. So in other words, what you're saying is the relationship is more important than my healing. And I'm saying, nope. Nope, because all that shit, all that crud that's still in the vault, it'll eat you up over the course, of, whether it's in this relationship or other relationships or your entire life, it'll eat you up. So you're valuing something over your own self, over your own healing, and I am not in favor of that at all. If you choose to forgive and restore that relationship with that person, fine. But if you basically, one more thing, if you do it before you open up that vault, you are fundamentally conveying the message to this other person, but ultimately to your own self that my feelings don't matter. And guess what? That's the belief system that got those feelings in that vault to begin with. The reason you vaulted your feelings is because you were taught somewhere along the line, probably four or eight years old or 12 years old or all those ages, you were taught that your feelings aren't welcome. And so you stuck them in a vault. But now you're the one keeping them in the vault. So you are fundamentally committing the same uh, abuse towards your soul. You're victimizing your own soul. You're doing it again, except this time it's you. Now it's you telling that seven-year-old, no, your feelings don't matter. Now it's you. It's not the parent anymore. Now it's you. And so the reason I say don't forgive too soon is give yourself permission to get all the stuff out. Then if you decide to forgive, hey, God bless you, go for it, whatever. Who gives a shit? The bottom line is the healing. And that's done by opening the vault. Well, you fine people, everyone out there listening all around the world, I want to thank you so much for following the Badass Counseling Show. I love taking your questions and I love uh, being a part of your lives in the small ways that I'm able to help. Uh, this has been a great lightning round, a real breadth of questions. And uh, as you know, we drop new episodes of the lightning round every Sunday and we drop new counseling sessions um, on our podcast on Thursdays. We have a new one dropping every Thursday and uh, at midnight. And so we thank you for joining us here on behalf of my kick-ass master producer, Rob, and on behalf of Casey, uh, my other producer, thank you so much for joining the Badass Counseling Show. Have a kick-ass day. The Badass Counseling Show is strictly copyrighted. No copies may be made without the express written consent of the Badass Counseling Show, LLC. The Badass Counseling Show is produced by Karen Camparelli and Robert H. Friedman. Executive producer, Sven Erlinson. Original music by two-time Emmy Award-winning composer, Trevor Morris. Have a kick-ass day.